Thank you, Martin. Have you ever had a really, really bad day? Or maybe a sequence of events which just sort of roll into one another and uh, it's just like everything's going wrong. And have you got that friend, that mate of yours, where whenever something happens to you, something worse has happened to him? <laughs> have, you got, have you got a friend like that? Oh, it's, I've had a tough time recently. Someone bumped into my car. Oh, well, someone wrote my car off. Oh, oh, uh, uh, oh, I'm having a really stressful time at work at the moment. Oh, I've been sacked. Oh, oh, sorry I'm a bit late. I missed the bus. Oh, well, I got caught up in a terrorist attack. <laughs> that sort of just always has to go kind of like one better in the sort of stakes of uh, how, how difficult things are. What's quite funny is I can see a few of you like smiling at each other at the moment, so let's not be too awkward about this. Uh, I'm not referring to anybody here. But I'm pretty sure if your mate, who can always trump your bad story, was to sit on the bus next to Joseph, I don't think that he would come out on top. I think Joseph is going to come out on top. So I think that this passage today is going to be really useful if you're going through a tough time at the moment, if you're going through a tough run of form, but also if you are walking alongside somebody, if there's someone in your life who you're seeking to encourage and speak into uh, who's going through a tough time, I think this is a word of encouragement and equipping for you this morning. But not just with words, I believe that by his Holy Spirit, God wants to impart something to you, if you're in either of those circumstances, there's actually gifts coming from God today to equip us in our circumstances. But we're going to start off by looking at the scripture. We're in Genesis 37, and we are from verse 1. It'll help you to uh, follow it in the Bibles that you've got with you because the, the writing gets smaller and smaller and smaller on the screen as I try and fit more and more in without having 42 different slides. So there we go. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhar and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So the family of Jacob was large, it was prosperous, it was well established. But underneath the surface, there were these tensions simmering away. It says that Joseph had given a bad report of his brothers. Now, we don't know if that means that either he'd, uh, he'd sort of uh, like made up a story to make them look bad or whether that he'd got kind of run to his dad and, uh, and told him something that they had done. But either way, it was not very good for his ongoing relationship with his brothers. We're told that uh, Joseph, uh, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. 
And the backstory here is quite important uh, of his wives. Jacob absolutely loved Rachel. That was uh, Joseph's mother. And, uh, and she had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, but she died giving birth to Benjamin. So what we're being told here is that the eldest child of his favorite wife, if you like, Joseph, is almost like becoming the new emotional center of Jacob's life. And, and, and Joseph's stepbrothers, they're quite within their rights to not like that, are they? That, that doesn't seem particularly fair on them. And so Jacob makes him this sort of richly uh, ornamented robe. And uh, it might confuse some of us of a certain vintage that Jacob actually gives this robe to Joseph and not to Jason Donovan. But uh, if you just uh, park that thought for a moment... And we will stay strictly with what the Bible actually tells us. A highly ornamented robe, richly decorated, valuable. In some ways, kind of this part of the story should be good news for Joseph. You know, your father loves you, he really dotes on you, and he buys you something nice. That's good news, surely. But not if your brothers already hate you. Not if your brothers are already uh, feeling insecure about the favoritism that you are being shown. Now, I think if you or I were having a little bit of trouble in our family with fitting in and a little bit of sibling rivalry and not entirely sure what, what, uh, uh, what was going to happen next, we'd probably try to keep our heads down a little bit, uh, not say anything too over the top, uh, just keep on going gently in the background and hope it would all work out. Am I right? Would, is that how you'd sort of play it? I'd, I'd think so. Not so for Joseph. We're going to read on from verse 5. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream that I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, when suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered all around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and because of what he had said. And then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come to bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So when he tells this dream to his brothers, they are absolutely furious. And he saw how wound they got up, how wound up they got about the first dream, and he still tells them the second dream. I put it to you that he doesn't seem to be able to read people's responses very well here. There's a lack of sort of emotional intelligence going on. And that's quite interesting because in some ways I think this gives us a little insight into the prophetic here. Yes, he was absolutely 100% accurate with what he'd seen in his dreams. But were these dreams for the encouragement of his brothers, or for Joseph? Was he even meant to tell them? And if it was for them, was it for then? Was it for that time where they were already in a real huff with him about his new coat? Despite sort of these dreams being remarkably accurate in what they told, 
Should he have shared them at that time with those people? That's a question mark that that leaves me with. Three times it says that the hate of his brothers is growing. There's this cycle that seems to be happening. There's a genuine sense of injustice. In this case, the favoritism of his father. This preference that he receives. So there's a genuine injustice, but that gives birth to a sense of hate and a sense of anger. And ultimately, that sense of anger and hate gives birth to violence within the passage that we're going to continue to read. And I find it sobering, and I think it's sobering for each and every one of us to take even just that fact and use it as a question to us today. Is there a sense of genuine injustice that we experience or live under that's still bubbling away under the surface? Even if it's a genuine injustice that we face, what are we allowing it to give birth to in our life? How can we walk through injustices happening to us without that sense of bitterness and resentment being born in us, being birthed in us? Another thing that we see as we read through is a a very clear sense of almost like the hidden purposes of God. Behind the story, God is at work. In those days, the younger people would bow to the older people. The children would bow to the parents. No matter how old you got, you would always show respect to your elders. But God gives Joseph these dreams that say, I'm going to save this family but in a way that absolutely turns the world on its head and the expectations of society and the expectations of how it will be, I'm going to turn that on its head. God had a plan to save them, but it seems to be the complete opposite of what anybody expected. And so, not only what people expected, what people thought was right. People wouldn't have thought it was right that the youngest person was the one who received honor within the family. So that's the major reason why they're all just so incensed by what God seems to be speaking to them through Joseph. These dreams seem to suggest that the whole family order would turn upside down and and it really helps us to consider that this isn't just Jacob and his sons being a little bit twitchy. This is like the entire societal order being turned on its head. He's dreaming of something that would have been a very real scandal for them. But we're going to carry on now and we're in verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent them off from the valley of Hebron. Then Joseph arrived at Shechem. A man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, but they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him, and let's throw him into one of these cisterns and say a ferocious animal devoured him. 
Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and they threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. What we read of here is a series of little coincidences that seem to fit together. Jacob sends Joseph to see his brothers, but the brothers have decided to not stay there. Joseph just happened to come to that place where they'd been, and he just happened to bump into this stranger who just happened to have overheard a group of people saying exactly where they're going to Dothan. And then Joseph comes and uh, they grab hold of him, but Reuben just happens to be there to stop him from being killed. We need to really listen up at this point. Because in some ways, these are kind of like the dull bit of the passage, just loads of details and places. And, but actually, unless all these slightly abstract, slightly dull details of the story happen in this order and in this way, then everybody dies. Everybody dies. Unless these coincidences just roll into place. A famine is going to come and there will be nothing that any of them can do about it unless one of them has the means or the power to provide food that comes from somewhere else. The point is that each each and every one of these little details... Every one of these coincidences is actually mapped out into the whole purpose. If any one of them didn't happen, not only would the whole family die, but thousands of people in that area would die and the entire family line of Jesus would be wiped out. Unless they'd bumped into that guy, unless he'd bumped into that guy in the field who'd overheard where the brothers were going. Whatever our circumstances and whatever we are facing, God is interested and evidently involved in the details of our life. Let's go from verse 25. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. 
He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. And that's where uh, our story is going to be picked up in a future talk. I just want to make one thing obvious now at this point. We've read the whole chapter. There isn't really any mention of God anywhere. God isn't really said to have done anything or spoken at all. In all of these things we've just read about, God seems utterly, absolutely, and completely absent. Have you ever had situations in your life when, if we're honest about it, it feels as though God is absent? Where is God in this? And it's almost like writing it in this way, the author is allowing us to believe that God is absent on the surface. And dare I say it, if we were Joseph, if we were in the cistern, it'd feel like it, wouldn't it? It would feel like God was absent. Your brothers hate you, your dad's a bit needy about you, but then he goes mad about a dream that you've had. And then your brothers throw you in a cistern and sell you into slavery. Where are you, God, in that? Where are you? Why didn't you intervene? Why did you let this happen to me? And yet hindsight is going to show us, as we look further into the life of Joseph, that God was at work. God was arranging things for the salvation of Joseph and his family and even his nation And through them, even us. Romans 8 verse 28 says, famous verse, And we all know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Just read that again. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. I wonder, do we really believe this? Do I really believe this when push comes to shove? This is a real encouragement for us and it's a a real encouragement for uh, people that we're alongside as we walk through times of great difficulty, opposition and suffering. But what I don't recommend, I don't think you would have helped Joseph Right, if he was in the cistern wondering what was going to happen next, if you were walking past and you leant over the side and you shouted out, Don't worry, Joseph, God works for good for those who trust him, and then carried on walking and left him in a dried up cistern in the middle of the desert. I don't think that would have been a, uh, a massive encouragement to him. This isn't some kind of like glib statement that we can just shove at Christians when they're suffering but it's like this foundational truth like this really heavy stone at the base of our spiritual life 
that from which our peace and security comes in times of shaking. We live kind of constantly within this tension of God's redeeming love for us and really bad things happening. They seize Joseph, they stripped him, they throw him in the cistern, they abandon him to die, they sell him into slavery. But if these awful things hadn't happened, then there wouldn't have been salvation for any of them. The place where this all happens is significant as well, I think. Just as a little bit of a comparison, this place called Dothan, which I don't think many of us, it doesn't spring to mind when we think of famous places in the Bible, but this is a story that involves the prophet Elisha in the same place. He and his servant were in the city, and the city was surrounded by an enemy army, and the army was going to come, and they were going to wipe out the city and kill everyone. So there was a real threat to Elisha and his servant when they were in the same place, and Elisha calls out to God, And uh, they have this vision of um, heavenly chariots coming, chariots of fire coming from from heaven to intervene. and, uh, And they're saved and they're rescued. That's the kind of answer to prayer that I want. That's when I talk about the power of prayer, that's my idea of how it ought to work. You cry out from difficulty, Lord, please save me. Bam, chariots of fire, angels, an army of angels springs to immediate action. So when we're in the prayer meeting and when we're praying for stuff to happen, that's what we're thinking of. We're thinking of instant, public, obvious, powerful answer to prayer. That's what I have in my mind when I'm praying for stuff to happen. But hold on a minute. We're in the same Bible. We're talking about the same God. We're physically in the same place. And two people are crying out, save me. In Joseph's case, nobody comes. And in Elisha's case, chariots of fire. Why is that? Why is that? We don't know, 100%. But it does feel like Elisha's salvation is quite simple. What he needs is to be physically saved in the there and then, whereas what's happening in Joseph and his life and in the life of his family is so much more complicated than the immediate moment that he's facing. If God had saved Joseph from the circumstances there and then, then none of the future stuff we're going to hear about could have happened. God was caring and showing his love for Joseph as much in this passage where it feels like he's silent, it feels like God's hidden, but he's showing his love, his care, and his overall desire to save Joseph as much as he was with Elisha and the chariots of fire, with all that immediate and dramatic action. Can we believe that God is still at work in equal power with an equal sense of love and care in both situations? If we really knew how much God was involved in the details and with the people, think how much peace and strength 
that that would bring us in our life. That God is always listening. God is always answering. God is always working, even when it's silent to us. And I think we need to be really careful to not box him in to answer these things in our way, in our time. Because he may well be up to something way bigger than what we can ever imagine. It's true that suffering by itself in, in isolation, in a vacuum, can, can completely ruin us. It can devastate us. But suffering alongside an absolute assurance of God's love is actually something incredible and is part of our witness as Christians. I want to change uh, direction slightly for a moment now and say that uh, Joseph's story only really makes sense to us here today if we see those circumstances through what Jesus has now done. Now, last week, there were so many ways that the story of Abraham and Isaac connected with what we now know about Jesus. And here we see another whisper in the Old Testament coming forward about Jesus. Because centuries later, there was to be another one who would come. And he was despised and rejected. And he was sold for silver and betrayed by the people closest to him and he was stripped and he was abandoned to die and he cried out in the dark my God why have you forsaken me and nobody came to rescue him nobody answered and that was Jesus Joseph was being turned into a a savior figure as we'll find out as we continue our series as God's salvation plan unfolds for his people, just as Jesus was being turned into a savior, as it were, through his apparent weakness in suffering and rejection. I think it's interesting, though, because this was happening to Joseph. It wasn't voluntary for Joseph. He didn't sign up to this task. He didn't sign up ever to say, I'm going to be the savior of my family and my people. But Jesus came voluntarily. And his sense of abandonment was infinitely beyond anything that Joseph experienced. Jesus chose to put himself through all of that. To pay a ransom for us to go free, to take upon himself a punishment for our sin. There's a few practical outworkings now that I just want to uh, go through, and then we'll be coming to a conclusion and we're going to worship together. When suffering hits you, like it did Joseph, we always need to look to the cross. If we're tempted to ask the question, how could God allow that to happen to Joseph? then the answer ultimately is always found in Jesus. And is another question. How could God allow that to happen to himself? Joseph's story today is so important because Jesus is the ultimate Joseph. The cross proves that 
And so that's where our hope is. Next up, we live in this sort of tension where we can know and not know what God is doing. And both of those things need to be okay. If you think you know everything that God is doing in your life, then please just be really careful because I'd suggest to you that you don't and I don't and none of us do. And and if we get into the habit of thinking, well, God is doing this and that's going to lead on to this and then this will happen and then something happens that breaks that sort of road that we've mapped out for ourselves, thinking of what God is going to do, and then it all feels like it's fallen apart, and it's like, well, where were you, God? We can get really disappointed. Why isn't God working? Well, the answer is that God is working, and he's working in the big stuff, and he's working in the details. It's just that we don't know what he's doing yet. Here's another perspective. Do you think Joseph could have handled knowing everything that was going to happen to him in advance? If, uh, if someone had given him a, mate, here's your diary for the next few months and years. This is what it's going to look like. What would Joseph have done? I know what I would have done. I would have gone for a very long holiday somewhere safe if I knew uh, that all of that was coming and in store for me. Could we even handle knowing what is around the corner and what is the future for us? Could we handle knowing about the future blessings as well as future hardships? Or would that cause us difficulty now? If we know how good things are going to happen in the future, would that also cause us difficulty today? The truth is we don't know the whole map and we don't have to know the whole map. What we need to know is the presence of God with us day by day. Because wherever he's leading us, the truth is he is leading us. We do know that he's working, but we also need to be willing to not know in every way that he's working. We know that his arms are under us, but we don't jump to conclusions about exactly what he's doing. We can know and also not know what God is doing. Two more points. The next one is very simple. Silence is not silence. It's never real silence. We might not be able to hear God in the kind of loud trumpets, chariots of fire kind of a way. But when we look in the detail, we know that God is working. I guess my encouragement to you and a kind of like, uh, is to not miss God's provision in the details because we're imagining the chariots of fire. Yes, we can still continue to pray for God to intervene in miraculous power, absolutely. But I do believe he's already doing that day by day through the details of our lives that other people call coincidence. But our heavenly father calls his love and provision for us I think we can ask in any situation that we face however dark it seems where is Jesus in this situation what is Jesus doing in this situation where is the wind of the Holy Spirit moving in this situation and then finally this cloak of approval 
from Joseph's father that showed that he was his father's favorite. Take away the uh, negative connotations of that part of the story for a moment and just think of that endorsement and approval and love of your father. We think of the parable sometimes called of the prodigal son, sometimes of the loving father. And as his son returns, he too gives him a cloak, gives him a robe to show belonging and favor and approval of a father. And we have the love of God to experience day by day through Jesus, his approval and acceptance, his love and kindness, not a robe that angry and jealous people can steal from us, can take away from us. They took a robe from Joseph, they took a robe from Jesus, but that can't happen to us. Day by day, we walk in the approval and the love and the belonging of our Father in heaven because of what Jesus has done. So when we walk the path of life, whatever our day looks like, if you have one of those days tomorrow that we started with right at the beginning, we walk through those circumstances surrounded by the loving approval of God expressed through us, through his son Jesus. I put it to you that the story of Joseph, while being dark, even in the, in the quiet parts, just show us such an example of the love and the purposes of God. And when we look later in his life, as we're going to do in our series, we're just going to be astonished at all what God is going to do in him and through him. But it starts with this simple fact that even in the apparent silence, God was there working in power. And for that detail alone, we should take great hope. I'd love to invite the musicians to come back. And uh, what I'd love to do is to uh, finish with a sense of worship and a sense of wherever we are on that journey, submitting ourselves and almost like realigning ourselves and saying yes I know Lord whatever is happening at the moment we know that our hope ultimately is in you and is in you alone and then I think there'll be a time as well this morning where I'd really love us to have an opportunity to pray specifically for the people who are going through a tough time or for people here this morning who are supporting others going through a tough time And Phil can lead us into that part. But for now, I'd love us to stand together and I'd love us to respond to God with a heart and an attitude of worship.